Habits and Health, episode 48. Welcome to the Habits and Health podcast, where we believe creating healthy habits should be easy. Brought to you by an educator and coach for anyone who wants to create a healthier life. Here's your host, Tony Winyard. Welcome to another edition of Habits and Health. My guest today, Emily Bland, she's a clinical exercise physiologist who treats patients with um, OI, POTS, chronic fatigue syndrome, persistent pain, fibromyalgia, and many others. And we're going to hear a lot more about how Emily does that and what some of those conditions are. We may not even be familiar with some of the ones I just mentioned. So we're going to find out a lot more about that in this episode with Emily. And if you do know anyone who would um, would really find some of the information valuable, please do share the episode episode with them. Hope you enjoy the episode. Habits and health. My guest today, Emily Bland. How are you, Emily? Good thanks, Tony. Thanks so much for having me here. Yeah, it's great to have you here. And you you've you've wandered quite away from where you're actually from. That's right, yep. So recently in the last six months moved to Cornwall and I'm actually from Melbourne, Australia. So a little bit of travel to get here. And do you plan on adopting a Cornish accent? <laughs> Everyone's asking me that, so we'll wait and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> and you're, you're from Melbourne? That's right, yeah, down the bottom of Australia there. So how, how does Melbourne compare to, wh- where in Cornwall are you? Um, so we're near Truro, if okay. you know where that is. Yeah, and yeah. Um, yeah, it's pretty far south. And, and uh, how would you compare cool. Melbourne to Truro? Uh, it's... Melbourne's a lot busier, that's for sure. Truro is a lot quieter, but that's really up my alley. I do prefer the country life over the city life. Right. But as I discovered before we started recording, you're not a, you're not a surfer, which is what people... No. <laughs> no. Everyone says that we're in the perfect place on the coast for surfing, but funnily enough, neither myself nor my partner have ever been surfing before. So <laughs> classic Aussie stereotype, which is fine. <laughs> So what, how, how is it that you help people? What is it that you do? Yeah, so I'm a clinical exercise physiologist and basically I specialise in treating people with chronic fatigue syndrome or CFS-ME. I think over here in the UK it's um, referred to more as ME, which is myalgic encephalomyelitis. It's always a bit of a tongue twister, that one. And um, so that's one category of people that I treat. I also specialise in people with dysautonomia as well, in particular orthostatic intolerance, so things like postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome or POTS. And again, I need to take that a little bit for the UK because it is called just postural tachycardia syndrome over here. So, um, yeah, I work with patients who have these sorts of conditions and um, persistent pain is one that I didn't mention, so things like fibromyalgia, and it's interesting because these conditions tend to have a big overlap as well. So it does work really well, especially in all of those areas. Um, and the main thing that I do is uh, use education around their symptoms and how to manage them. And I use a lot of energy management as well. So helping people to manage where they put their energy so that they can be sustainable and reduce their symptoms. And, and what led you into doing this? Yeah, really good question, Tony. And uh, I've actually got chronic fatigue and POTS and I've also got endometriosis myself. So I have a little bit of the trifecta of fatigue, uh, orthostatic intolerance and persistent pain. And um, at the time when I first developed these conditions, I was actually studying 
in the exercise field. And in Australia, when you study in that, you can actually go on to specialise in the clinical side of things. And for me, it was an absolute no-brainer that when I developed these conditions and I was on track with my studies, that I was 100% going to go and specialise in this field so that I could give back to people with these conditions while also being really empathetic to what they were going through. And so how did... You mentioned about the various conditions you had. So, how did they did they limit you in any way? What what was the um, how was it affecting you? Yeah. So, a lot of these conditions. So, if anybody um, listening to this knows someone with these conditions or has them themselves, they would know that they're very spectrum based. So, you can get people who have very minimal symptoms, and then you can have people who have very debilitating symptoms as well. And when I first became unwell after an infection, um, I was right up the end of the scale of being very debilitated and I was housebound for about a year. Couldn't do how, much old at all. how old were you then? 20, 21 years old, yeah. So it was about seven years ago for me now, seven, eight years. Um, so obviously that had a huge impact on my life. Uh, mm. You know, everybody else is going out celebrating 21st birthdays and I'm just hanging out at home hoping that things will get better. And again, for people who are familiar with these conditions, you would know that it's not um, something you could ever expect is that one day you become ill and then the next day you don't get better because normally we get sick with something, we recover, we go back to normal. So I was kind of waiting for things to pick up and just go back to how they were. And it it took a couple of years for me to actually get any sort of diagnoses with my health. So it was definitely a long journey um, and not until I had those proper diagnoses that I could find the right help and therapy to actually start to improve my health again. So, I mean, a couple of things come to mind when you, when you say that. So I'm wondering, so how, what was the initial, what did you first notice? What, what was the first sign that there was something not quite right? Yeah. And, and of the things that you mentioned that you had, what was the initial thing that they said you had? Or did they, did they say you had all of those at the same time? You know, I just wonder how that kind of developed. Yeah, no, really, really good question because this is something that there's usually a lot of overlap with experience, as, sorry, experiences that people have with these conditions um, in terms of diagnoses, but then there's some real differences as well. So I always stress that this was my experience and it's, you know, a personal one. So it's not going to be the same as everybody else's. But mm. the first thing that I particularly noticed was a lot of shortness of breath and intolerance to being upright. So I couldn't stand for long periods of time and I was unusually fatigued. So when that first started to happen though, what what did you think was going on? Because they did just suddenly come out of the blue? Yeah, yeah, it was pretty sudden after the infection. So, you know, I gave the infection maybe a month and when things didn't improve after that, I was like, something's wrong. So working in retail, um, you know, I was doing a four hour shift and I just couldn't stand up at my register anymore. And I was like, What what is going on? I, I must be crazy. I must be making this up. And mm people use the the L word, which we call a bit of a swear word in my field of work, and that's lazy, like just being lazy. And, yeah, it was really hard because I couldn't explain to people what was going on because I didn't know myself. Hmm. Um, But the other part of your question there, Tony, was that uh, the doctor that I was seeing at the time said that I had anxiety. They're like, Hmm. you are struggling with anxiety and you need to go on antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications, and you need to go see a psychologist. And just Finally. to interrupt you again, but I, okay. 
my I imagine, and you know, I'm by no means an expert in this, I imagine this is the kind of thing that would be easily misdiagnosed quite early 100%, on. 100%, 100%. And particularly with POTS or orthostatic intolerance, anxiety is a very go-to diagnosis from doctors that don't understand. Mm. Um, and, yeah, it was, it was very conflicting for me at the time because I had already been diagnosed with anxiety and I'd had anxiety for most of my life, childhood, teenage years. So when they said, you've got anxiety, I was like, this can't be right because these symptoms are all new and it's not the same. Hmm. Yeah. So it was very, very interesting. And unfortunately, it's a story that I hear a lot from my patients now. So what happened from then? So once you, you realized, no, I don't think this is simply anxiety. So what, what, how did it progress from there? Yeah. So after a couple of years, I got to a point where I was like, this, there has to be more to this. And I didn't give up. And again, a very relatable thing is you get thrown around the healthcare system a lot and you go from person to person until I eventually ran into a, um, a gastroenterologist who said, oh, I think you've got POTS, which I'd never heard of. And so I was very fortunate that she referred me to a cardiologist who specialised in that area. And then they um, yeah, found that diagnosis and it just kind of snowballed from there. And I was actually referred to see a clinical exercise physiologist myself. And it was all the work that I did with them that completely changed my outlook. And I started showing some improvement in my health then. So very inspiring to go into that role after that kind of help. And the- would you say the level of awareness around POTS and CFS and so on, is it much different here to Australia or how would you, what would you say? Do you know what? I was still, I'm still developing my own concept around that at the moment because um, in Australia it, it's still missed. But now that I've started working with patients over in the UK, I've had some similar feedback from them as well explaining that it is something that it's really hard to get help for so I think from what I can tell so far it seems like a bit of a universal thing um, ironically just yesterday I did go to the doctor's office for something and the medical student that I was seeing had never heard of my conditions and I was like that's okay like that actually doesn't affect why I'm here but they had to go and get another doctor to come in and help with the consult and that senior doctor had never heard of any of the conditions either so it was okay because I'm educated enough that I can advocate for myself, but mm. it still was a challenging situation and probably a surprising one to the extent of it as well. So if anyone, anyone listening to this may, well, I, I wonder if there could be people listening to this who, similar to what you were told, have been told, oh, you've got anxiety, they've got some kind of issue, they don't really know what it is, yeah, and and they may just be told it's anxiety. What What kind of things... <laughs> could people be looking out for to realise maybe this is more than what you've been told that you have? Yeah, no, really good question again, Tony. And symptoms um, like shortness of breath, intolerance to standing up, high heart rates for seemingly no reason, um, those are some really big signs that you might have a condition like orthostatic intolerance or POTS. And I would actually encourage people that if they thought maybe they fell under that bracket to check out the POTS UK website because this is a a charity-run initiative and they provide a lot of help to people who think that they might have these conditions or know that they have these conditions. So not just information, but they also have recommendations of specialists that you can see in this area as well. 
And so how, once someone has one of these sort of issues, yeah. how easy or difficult is it to, to treat it, to, yeah. to live with it? What's this? I mean, and I, I realize there's a spectrum, as you said. But. Yeah. It's very subjective. It really is. So it depends on the individual. Um, it often depends on their age, how long they've been living with the conditions, what sort of treatment they've actually sought out or they've had the opportunity to seek because there, there is a lot of treatments out there and it's important to remember that we need to take a well-rounded approach because of how unique everybody is. Um, we can't just focus on psychology or we can't just focus on pharmaceuticals or lifestyle. It needs to be a combination and that's where a lot of the work that I do is I'm addressing lifestyle and energy management but I'm also working closely with people's specialists, their doctors, their psychologists to make sure that we're all on the same page as well. And so, so you mentioned some of the things, so endometriosis and CFS yeah. and so on. How, uh, it sounds from what you were saying, there's a lot of sort of connections between some of these, these conditions. Yeah, yeah, there definitely is. And um, it's one of those things where it's not, it doesn't have to be cause and effect. So we don't know if just because someone has this that they will develop this. It's one of those things that they're still doing a lot of research into because even with um, CFSME, they actually don't know what causes it. So to say cause and effect, we don't know, but we do know that they tend to be comorbid a lot of these conditions. So when we do treat someone, say, with um, chronic fatigue syndrome or ME, then we're always just being careful that they don't have symptoms of OI because if they do, we want to pick up on that and help them to manage that as well. And is that the same? Do they know what the causes of endometriosis are? Um, Again, it's something that I would actually have to do more research into myself to give you a proper answer on. But we do know that with... um, conditions of the nervous system so when our body is under a lot of stress that we have so people with ME and and POTS they have more symptoms when their body's under stress and we also know that their reproductive system um, their digestive system all those functions that automatically um, regulate themselves in the body that sometimes they're not regulating as well as they could because of the, the levels of stress adrenaline and cortisol that um, are affecting their system. So, again, I can't say if it's cause or effect, but that tends to be something that we see. And what is so someone who maybe does have endometriosis? And my feeling, and I could be very wrong in this, is that it seems that there's a lot of doctors who aren't that knowledgeable on it. Certainly, from experience I had in my, you know, with my daughter's mother and, and so on, because yeah. my, my daughter's mother had endometriosis. And her doctor seemed, had very little knowledge about it. It was very clear from some of the things he was saying. Mm. So I, I wonder, for, for people who do have that, what what advice, what kind of things can they do to alleviate it, to, to help it? With the symptoms themselves, Tony? Yeah. Yeah, so it's one of those things that a lot of people with endometriosis will have done a lot of research into this as well, but things like heat packs, TENS machines, Um, nourishing foods at different times of the month are good ways to manage it. 
they're also things that the individual needs to decide if it works for them. So I know with TENS machines, it's one of those things that um, if you want to use it, great. If you don't, that's fine. But the research is mixed. And um, But I do know people that love it, people that hate it. It's like compression tights in pots. Some people love it. Some people hate it. <laughs> and um, I think just making sure that you're seeking the right care for it as well. So finding websites um, like POTS UK can point you in the right direction because I think they have a section in there on endometriosis as well um, because you don't want to spend that time and that money seeing someone who's not specialised in that area. And it's like I always say to people, if you're having renovations done on your home and you're having someone come in to pull up the carpet, you usually have two or three people come in and give you a quote on that. You don't just go with the first person that you meet. It's exactly the same with our body is we don't have to go with the same this, um, one specialist that we meet straight away. We can have a look around and see what's out there and what is going to be the best fit for us in our body. So when, when people come to you, what are they usually they have one of the conditions that you've mentioned or how, how do clients find you? What is it they're looking for when they come to you? Yeah, no, good question again. Um, they have usually been struggling with these conditions for a while. So the reason for that is because, like I said, with my experience, it took a really long time for me to actually know what was going on. So by the time people are like, okay, I've got CFS or I've got fibro or I've got POTS, They've been living with it for a while and in some cases normalising the symptoms because they didn't know any difference and they're like, this is my life, this must just be what it is. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, those people who find me, it's usually through Instagram and um, LinkedIn and my website as well and they're usually asking questions to start with. They're like, hey, I'm living with this and, you know, this, this and this is stopping me from living my life. Do you think that there's any chance that you could help? And for me, it's actually really important because I don't know if you've seen my website yet, Tony, but it's very simple. And that's because I actually want to have a chat with people before I book them in and make sure that they are a good fit for what I do. Because for some people, they do need some further care. And long COVID is a really good example of that. So they need to make sure that they've had all the correct care and um, all of those things checked first before I would take them on as a patient. And it's the same with the other conditions. And, and is this are these things that you can do over over Zoom, or does it need to be face to face? Yeah, so all of my work is done through telehealth because right. I actually treat worldwide. So um, most of my patients at the moment are in the UK and Australia. Right. And for me, I thought that was great because I didn't want to say goodbye to all of my patients in Australia when I moved over. They definitely right. didn't want to say goodbye to me. Um, and living in Cornwall, I'm a little while away from the busy, busy London where, you know, a lot of healthcare is for these conditions. So I wanted to be able to reach everyone everywhere. And the added bonus was that I do have a lot of patients who have a lower capacity. So it means that they actually don't have to leave the house to have the appointment and mm -hmm. we can tailor the appointment to them. So, you know, one patient I've got at the moment, we have 10 minute appointments um, with the other 20 minutes of that appointment is filled in with recordings because they can't actually be on the phone for more than 10 minutes. So right. I find out everything that they are challenged with and then in that next 20 minutes I spend that educating them on what we would have gone through if I'd seen them face-to-face -face through Zoom. 
Um, and then, yeah, again, 30-minute sessions and 45-minute uh, sessions as well. So I try and accommodate for everyone at every level. And how prevalent are these things? Is it is it more than many people would imagine or is it quite rare? Yeah, I couldn't give you a number, but it's a lot more prevalent than people would realise, particularly because... Like I said, if it's spectrum-based, there are people out there who are quite functional living with symptoms who don't realise it. And we never actually see or I never see patients until their symptoms become limiting because if your symptoms weren't limiting, why would you go out of your way to try and, and fix something? So, yeah, it's definitely a lot more prevalent than we realise. And, um, you know, you can see that on social media and the support groups. It's quite overwhelming, actually, how many people out there are talking about it, which then kind of conflicts with the fact that we've got doctors out there who don't know what it is. So, <laughs> so it makes me wonder if is it are there more people being diagnosed with it now simply because there's more awareness of what it is, or is this always been around for a long time, or is it more because in the last over the last fifty years there's more environmental toxins and and various other stresses, why this is it maybe happening more? Yeah, and that's a kind of chicken and egg thing. In my opinion, I think it's because there's more awareness around it. So right. um, the the younger generations of doctors, and I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with the senior doctors, hmm. but from my personal experience, I've noticed that the younger generation of doctors are actually learning more about this central sensitization um, in their education. And my studies were quite similar, is that right as I was about to finish my studies, people started talking about central sensitization and a biopsychosocial all-rounded approach. And that was at the end of nine years of study for me. And I was like, where was that for the other eight years? Right. <laughs> and so you mentioned in your title, I forget the, the exact words, it was something physical exercise. What, what, was, your, what was it you said before? Um, so clinical exercise physiologist. Right. That so, is so, my official title. Yeah. And, and the word exercise seems to scare a lot of people, it seems like. Yeah, somewhere. yeah. So that's a really tough one because it is my official title, but um, particularly over here in the UK, they used to be called um, something called graded exercise therapy or GET. So exercise became a bit of a swear word because we know that GET is actually no good for people with CFS or POTS or um, fibro because what that was all about was giving people fixed incremental changes to a movement program. Right. And that's a very linear approach that doesn't take into consideration the individual. So if someone had CFS and you tried to give them GET, you'd be telling them, okay, this week you're doing five minutes of walking, and then next week you're doing 10 minutes of walking, and then the week after you're doing 15 minutes of walking, and it's just making them increase by increments regardless of whether they're tolerating that or not. So mm -hmm. what you really want to do with people is talk about energy management. And this is completely backed by the, um, the NICE guidelines here in the UK, is that when we talk about energy management, we make sure that it's patient-led. So we're not giving fixed increments. We're listening to the person as a whole person. Mm. And whenever we make alterations to their activities, it's self-driven by the patient and it's actually taking into consideration how they are, what symptoms they're experiencing and, um, you know, what levels they can tolerate at the moment. So, 
Yeah, it has been a really controversial topic, but the main takeaway with that is graded exercise was fixed incremental stuff, whereas energy management is patient-driven and you're actually listening to them. So you know if they're having a bad week or you know if something's going on there instead of just assuming that they're okay to keep moving forward. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Habits and Health podcast, where we believe creating healthy habits should be easy. If you are looking for deep support to create the health and life you want, we invite you to consider one-on-one coaching sessions with Tony. Coaching sessions give you personalised guidance to fit your unique goals and life situation. Only a limited number of spots are available, but you can easily get started by booking a free introductory call at tonywinyard.com. Now back to the show. It's very difficult for someone with CFS, for example, it, it must be very difficult to to do exercise in the first place because they're just so so tired. Yeah. But then it sounds like it's, it's essential that they do do some form of exercise. Otherwise, is it going to get much worse? Yeah, so the NICE guidelines, um, it's the National Institute of, of Care Excellence, I believe. It's a bit of a tongue twister again, that one in the UK. Um, they have contraindicated both graded exercise therapy and um, avoidance. So they don't want people to just completely rest and not move, Hmm. um, but they don't want them using fixed increments either. Hmm. So I actually, ironically enough, despite my job title, I don't talk about exercise. I talk about movement. Hmm. And I see movement as being spectrum-based. So Hmm. I might have a patient who comes to me and they're like, I want to work on my energy management so that I can work towards brushing my teeth. And that would be that patient's goal. Whereas I might have another patient come to me and say that their goal is being able to work on energy management so that they can walk their dog each day for 20 minutes. And those are two very different ends of the spectrum. But what we do with someone's energy is relative to their goals and what they're wanting to achieve. And and would a sport such as swimming be easier or or not? Would it be, again, very dependent on the the person? Extremely dependent on the individual. So for some people, um, you know, swimming just would be completely out of the question. Um, I know there are some published studies actually saying that it's not recommended for ME just because um, it's considered a danger to their health if they become unwell in the water. Uh, but then there's studies out there for people who just have pots. I shouldn't say just have hot pots, but they have pots. And they, um, they tolerate it really well because they get compression from being in the water. And then when they're in that flat-lying position, it's actually easier for them to regulate their blood pressure. So it would be something that you'd have to assess with the person. And also with people that have fatigue is it's not just swimming, it's getting to the pool, it's getting changed, then having a swim, getting out, having a shower, getting changed and having to get home. So Mm. it's one of those things you do need to tailor and talk to the person about first. What would you say to to friends and relatives of, of people who have a condition like CFS and how they can be... I don't know if sympathetic is the right word, empathetic yeah. to, to people, because they, I imagine there's some people who have no understanding of this. So what kind of things should they, how can they help, I guess is what I'm asking. Yeah, I think being able to have those open and honest conversations with the individual who is affected by the condition 
And a big one is understanding that we don't look sick. We don't look disabled. We look like normal people. And um, that's really hard for people to comprehend because Mm. they see one thing. And, you know, one day we might be completely fine and, you know, go about shopping, go for a walk, and then the next day we could be completely trash. And that is why energy management is so important so that we can get consistency. But that's a very confusing concept for someone that doesn't have these conditions. Mm. One of the resources that I love is there is an individual out there on the internet, if you Google the spoon theory, they use a, and I don't know if you've heard of this before, Tony, Um, they use a concept of, um, you know, spoons being energy. So, for example, you start your day with 12 spoons, you have breakfast, that takes one spoon away from you, so you lose that energy. If you want to have a read of it, please do, because this is a really good insight into people with living with chronic health conditions and how energy is sort of taken from us throughout the day because we don't have a unlimited supply like someone who doesn't have these conditions. And that's something that I often share with my friends and my relatives as well so that they can see where I'm coming from with my health. Uh, I'll make sure there's a link to that in the, in the notes so people can, can yeah. read that. Yeah, that'd be wonderful. So it's it, referred to a lot in social media, I think. In the um, in the, some of the questions I asked you before we started recording, yeah. and I was talking about habits and you mentioned pacing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So pacing is the foundation of everything that I teach and it's also the foundation of my life to live with these conditions and do what I do. Um, pacing is about energy management. So it's making sure that we are breaking up our days and we're not doing big blocks of activity back to back and then having a crash with our fatigue. It's about listening to our body so that when we do expend energy, we take time to rest and um, restore so that we kind of top our spoons back up. So if an activity can cost us spoons, we're trying to find ways to get some spoons back um, or to even just maintain ourselves so that we're not having those crashes. Hmm. We've been talking a lot about, you know, chronic fatigue syndrome and more about the kind of physical side of it, but I guess there's, there's a mental side of this as well. Oh, definitely. I think um, a lot of people overlook that. So not just friends and family, but sometimes us ourselves is that we forget that there is a cognitive side to it as well and it's not just physical. So we can expend energy physically and cognitively. Um, and that's something that people tend to overlook when it comes to pacing is they think that they're having um, a, a restorative, they're doing a restorative activity, I should say, Uh, But they're actually not, so they're concentrating, they're reading, they're listening to people. And that's where social activities can be so, so challenging for people with these chronic health conditions Hmm. because when you go out socially, it's physical to get there, it's physical to be present, um, but then it's cognitive to engage with people. Right. Yeah, so definitely very important to consider the cognitive so are there any other, so we've talked about the physical side, the cognitive side, are, are there any other elements as well that contribute to this? Yeah, so we, we talk about the four categories actually, so physical, cognitive, emotional and environmental. Right. And the emotional ones, again, is actually something that's surprisingly overlooked, even I still do it myself. If we're under stress, um, 
you know, for example, we get some bad news. So sometimes we go to a clinic, see a doctor, we get some bad news. Um, that takes an emotional toll on us and mm. the emotion takes energy. Anyone who has gone into their room, pulled the covers over their head and cried for a while would know that they're pretty tired after doing that. Mm. Um, and environmentally, that's quite a broad one. So mm. there can be a lot of things in the environment that can take energy from us. And some common ones are bright lights and loud noises because um, they're things that we can tend to be a little bit more uh, receptive to or sensitive to with these conditions. Well, I mean, the, one of the, the difficulties with not knowing so much about this from my point of view is, so therefore I'm very limited in the questions I can ask. So That's okay. What what question is there maybe that I haven't asked that, or what information, what thing would you like to say to people listening about this that, you know, a question I haven't even thought to ask you? Oh, Tony, that's a really good one. Specialisation, and I know that this is the case in Australia. I'm not entirely sure what it is in the UK, but I did spend nine years of my life um, undergoing tertiary studies to specialise as a clinical exercise physiologist. But not once did we actually touch on these health conditions. Or if we did, it might have been special populations and there might have been one slide in there that mentioned fatigue. Mm. So everything that I have done has been alongside my studies. So I attend PD. Um, I seek out people through networking to learn more and I am very proactive. So it is important, like I mentioned before, when you seek care that you go and see someone specialised in this mm. area because it's not something that we learn as part of our mainstream study, studies. And I know over here physiotherapists and occupational thera therapists are big um, areas to specialise in these conditions, but only the ones who have gone out of their way to learn more about it. So. Right. Yeah, that's definitely something that I would just be aware of if I was seeking care. Well, and that's got me thinking about, you know, there's books on every topic you can think of. So I'm therefore wondering, are there maybe the books around this this area, there's maybe some to almost avoid because they're not as they're maybe know, misinformation or is there any to your knowledge that, are not actually as helpful as they're proposing to be? So the texts that I stick to are the clinical ones and then that way I know that they are legit and that the information I'm getting out of them is good. Yeah. I haven't really read any, um, you know, off-the-shelf kind of books and I think if you're going to do that, make sure you do research beforehand into who's written the book um, and why it's being developed. Because I know for some, um, it's their personal experience as well. So I, I think that those are great, that people are sharing their personal experiences. Mm. But when we share our personal experiences, like I do myself, I always just make it really clear that that was my journey and that was what worked for me. Yeah. Because just because I have the label of CFSME or POTS or endometriosis mm. does not mean that I will be the same as somebody else who has those labels. And mm. that's something that I'm really careful with my treatment as well is just because you have CFS and somebody else has CFS, I cannot treat you as the same person. I need mm. to do a thorough assessment on you and make sure um, that I'm taking the right approaches for them as an individual. 
And it's the same with those books. They can be great, I'm mm. sure, um, but you need to do your research and go into it with an open mind as well. And are there are there any good information sources for people around this? Um, yeah, so again, uh, help on about Pots UK, um, who I'm just a really big fan of. I love their work and I'm actually starting to do some work with them myself next year. Mm-hmm. Um, there is the ME Association as well and um, they're really big over here. They sound really fantastic. And if anybody loves a bit of a nerd out like I do and they do enjoy reading, um, there's a text called Explain Pain, which goes through a lot of central sensitization um, concepts. So Explain Pain, although it is about chronic pain, um, it's relevant to your POTS and your chronic fatigue syndromes as well because we know that the nervous system works similarly for all of these conditions. That one's actually Australian. Um, that's a guy called Laura Mosley and David Butler. So if you want to check that one out, Explain Pain comes in your standard um, layperson form and it also comes in a clinician form as well if you're wanting to upskill your knowledge. Okay. Well, again, I'll put links to all of those in the show notes. So yeah. you can just, anyone just look in the, in the show notes for more information. <laughs> so I, I talked about, we touched upon books just now. Yeah. So I, is there a book that's really moved you in, in any way? Yeah, I think um, I was having uh, some thoughts about this and I, I, am I allowed to swear on this, Tony? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I know the book you're going to say, so go on. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck and Excuse Me for My Language, but that one is by Mark Manson. This isn't about chronic illness at all. It's just a general, easy written book um, about not giving a fuck. And I just applied it a lot to my life. And I really loved it because one, it's so easy to read. And with fatigue, it's not the easiest thing to concentrate on a book. And two, it just really outlined some seemingly basic concepts that were really helpful for me to just move on and not care what people thought about me or change my perception on things that maybe didn't matter as much that comment you just made i hadn't considered that aspect that it's not so easy for you to read a book so for, for that's another whole element to it as well that yeah 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 so do you and need also, to read a much shorter chunks to say than than maybe other people might yeah um again depending on the individual some yeah. people tolerate better tolerate it better than others um But yes, I I don't usually read as much as I used to in one hit. But interestingly enough, jumping back to um, Laura Mosley's book on explained pain, he talks about dims and sims, which are things that are good on our nervous system and things that are not so good. If we read a book that we enjoy and that's friendly, nice on our nervous system, then we're actually going to tolerate it better and be able to read more than if we were reading a journal article for uni, which seems like it's taking a bit more energy and is a bit more of a challenge on our nervous system. So So it's very subjective. So going on from that then, I'm guessing that if you're totally engrossed in a film, and even though it may be, say, three hours long, if you're totally engrossed in it, it's from a fatigue point of view, you're going to be okay with that, I guess. Not necessarily okay, but it may not um, it may not cost us as much energy, or it may not perceive that it costs as much energy. So perceptions are really big mm. word that I use a lot. It's not saying that it's all in our head because it's not; it's all in our brain. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But, yeah, depending on the environment and the situation, our nervous system can perceive it differently. So, um, and we just need to be aware that when we do enjoy things, it tends to be easier to get involved. But that doesn't mean that it's not costing us energy. So we do just need to be careful of that when it comes to managing our energy. Did you say at the beginning of this, as we started recording this, that there was an element of positive psychology? Did you mention that? Uh, No, I didn't. (laughs) Right. Okay. I must be getting mixed up with a recent recent person I talked to. Okay. Well, just, I mean, just before we, well, I mean, if people want to find out more about you, where, where would they look? Where's your social media, your website and so on? Yeah, definitely. So, um, my website is xphysmuk, which is E-X-P-H-Y-S-E-M.uk. And that's got some more information on me and what I do. Like I said, it's pretty simple because if people were seeking help in this area, I'm actually more than happy to get in touch with them and have a a more individualized um, conversation with them. Mm -hmm. But also my LinkedIn. So if you just check out um, Emily Bland or XFizM on LinkedIn, I should come up. And also my Instagram page, which is actually um, my dog. So my dog is the front of all of that for a little bit of fun and that one's called dog.autonomia and that is all about tips and tricks for people living with chronic health conditions and um, also a little bit of fun and some humour in there as well. So check it out. Cool. And just before we finish, I mean, the question I always um, finish on with all my guests is, is there a quote that you particularly like or quotes that you particularly like? Yeah, there's a couple. Um, one was actually one that I always say myself, and that's that, you know, chronic illness shouldn't be about missing out. It should be about living life a little bit differently. So I say to my patients, we shouldn't um, not be able to do things, but we just need to look at doing them a little bit differently. So my other favourite quote is from Winnie the Pooh and that is doing nothing often leads to the very best of something. And when I first heard that, it really resonated with me from a fatigue perspective because sometimes we do need to stop and do nothing. We need to sit on the couch and just hang out so that we can have the energy to do the very best of something. Well, that's actually appropriate to everyone in society, whether they've got CFS, whatever, because too many people try to do too much. Yeah. I actually say to people that um, the things that I teach in my program, so the education and the management, if people that didn't have these health conditions actually implemented them in their life, they would be living their best life Mm. and they would be managing really, really well. And I'm not saying that they're not, Mm. but it would really enhance um, their ability to, you know, be in the best place that they could be. Well, Emily, I really thank you for providing this information because it's something that I think it's not probably not talked about enough. And so there's a lot of people... There's a real lack of awareness around it. So, yeah, thank you for giving giving this information to people. Well, thank you so much for having me, Tony. It was really nice to come on here and help to raise awareness around these conditions. Great. Thank you. Next week, episode 49 with Dr. Sarah Mayhill. She's a former GP who now is a registered with the Association of Naturopathic Practitioners. Um, she's written numerous books on many different areas around health, and she's also written some some papers uh, around mitochondrial dysfunction and some other areas 
Her latest book is The Energy Equation, and she not so long ago did a book called Ecological Medicine. She's, she's a controversial figure, is, is Sarah. She has very strong views, and she doesn't always agree with the way that some things are done in, in the UK regarding medicine. She has, she's more into the kind of integrative functional medicine type of approach, or she's not a functional medicine doctor, but she's more into that type of approach. It's quite an interesting episode. She's definitely no wallflower. She has some very interesting observations and comments. So that's next week's episode with Dr. Sarah Myhill. If you did enjoy this week's episode with Emily Bland, please do share the episode with anyone who you feel, think would get some real value from it and hope you have a great week. Thanks for tuning in to the Habits and Health Podcast, where we believe creating healthy habits should be easy. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. Sign up for email updates and learn about coaching and workshop opportunities at TonyWinyard.com. See you next time on the Habits and Health Podcast.